does this kingdom come? And, I'm, and, and, and notice again, we've been using the image of a, of a tennis match or of a, this back and forth to, to portray how Jesus has almost literally orchestrated this moment. And now, in a moment, he is going to stand face to face with the representative of the most powerful nation on earth. And the question is going to be, how does his kingdom come? And notice the responses of the representatives of that nation. We're going to look in verse 15, um, and uh, or excuse me, Mark 15 and verses 1, and we'll take it all the way through to the end. I don't know if I'm going to have time to read all of the text. I'm going to try to do that because I think that's more important than anything I say about it. Um, but we'll, we'll start with this in verse Verse 1, if you need a Bible, we have a few uh, extra on the, on the sides. Anybody want one that doesn't have one? We've got somebody back there, if you would, please. Good, thank you. And anybody else? And up here? Somebody take care of that for me. Good, thank you. Um, we're going to pick it up in this version, at least, on page 712 in verse 1 of chapter 15. Um, very early in the morning the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. They bound Jesus and led him away and handed him over to Pilate. I'm going to stop in just a couple of minutes and point a couple of sections and just point out some things. Please notice as we sit with that, and if you just uh, uh, back it up and just leave it up there. Thanks, Faith. Um, early in the morning, so that they had been meeting, as you know, they arrested Jesus late in the evening. They had taken him and they have kind of tried to figure out how to, to, to get their purpose accomplished. They've arrested him in the middle of the night because they don't want to stir a riot, which they believe will occur. He has been um, speaking in public and, and he himself in, in a kind of a joking way says, you know, I've been speaking every day in the, in the, in the temple. Where have you been? I mean, he is so confident in this. He is able to joke with those who have come to arrest him. He is teasing them, if almost, if you will. So, so confident in his, in his sense of self is he, that, that even in this intense trial, he just completely and utterly composed as he goes through this. And the Sanhedrin, as Darren led us through last week, has finally got him to trap himself, quote-unquote, by saying something that they are able to twist and make a charge of blasphemy. But that's not enough for them. They realize that they have no power to eliminate this threat. And so they have to find a way to get him found guilty and treasonable by the Roman government so that he can be eliminated from concern and consideration. This is their, this is their logic. So they reach a decision on how they're going to accomplish this, it says in verse 1. And they decide they're going to bind Jesus and lead him away and hand him over to Pilate. This is huge. The priests did not cooperate with Pilate on anything. They hated him. He was a bloodthirsty tyrant who arbitrarily would... He, he in one instance, disguised his Roman soldiers as pilgrims and went into the into a feast and on a signal they revealed themselves as Roman soldiers and just wantonly killed people around them. This was Pilate's way of reminding the Jews that they were under his thumb and that they had no life apart from what he chose to give them. This is the kind of man we're dealing with. 
And the priests simply did not cooperate with him at all, except when they wanted to play him for their own goals or ends. This is what's happening. They bring him to Pilate. Verse 2, Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. Notice that, that sorry, I'm, <laughs> Faith and I, are. we need to get on the same page here. Uh, are you the king of the Jews? If you can just imagine the sarcasm. Here's, here's the, here's, he, he, Pilate is not stupid. He's brutal, he's bloodthirsty, but he's not stupid. So he knows something's up here. They come to him with a trumped-up charge. This man has declared himself to be the king of the Jews. We have no king, they'll say in another place, but Caesar, which is pretty revealing. And so they want to get Pilate to find him guilty of treason so that Pilate will execute him uh, virtually and make an example of him. This is the other part of this. So they bring him with the charge. Are you the king of the Jews? Pilate can't believe it. Here's this broken man standing before him, this 30-year-old peasant who has no regal bearing and, 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 and with sarcasm dripping from his voice, he asks the accused, you? Really? You are the king of the Jews? And Jesus, completely calm, he is not intimidated by this man of power who has the right of life and death over him, or so Pilate thinks, says to him, it is as you say it. I don't think Pilate has ever been spoken to like that by a prisoner before. The chief priests hearing this interchange and watching the indecision in Pilate's eyes begin to heap accusations on him. The volume of their accusations marks the weakness of their position. They say, accusing him of many things. Um, then verse 4, so Pilate asks again, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply. And Pilate was amazed. In the Roman government, the accused has a right to speak in his own defense, but if he fails to do so, he is admitting responsibility for the charges leveled against him. So Jesus does not speak in his own defense. I want you to kind of put me back in. Put back in. These guys have been up all night. They have been twisting themselves into pretzels ethically, trying to figure out how to get this, and they are seeing the fish starting to wiggle off the hook. So they are piling this on. They have been up all night. They are bleary-eyed. They are piling on accusations. Pilate, early in the morning, we're dealing sometime between 8, um, probably 7 and, and, and 8 o'clock in the morning, if you, if you will. And Pilate, is, 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 he, he knows he's being played. He just can't quite figure out what's going on. Do you see? And Jesus is just very calmly standing there. Don't you say anything. Jesus remained utterly silent. He's been up all night too. And is completely in control of his, whole, his emotions. Do, do you see where this is going? So, Pilate was amazed. Remember, John's Gospel is, or excuse me, Mark's Gospel is written to a Roman audience. So, part of the function of Mark's Gospel 
is to make the case that the Christian community is not a threat to Rome. And that, in fact, any time a Roman official came in contact with Jesus, they were impressed by him. So here's Pilate, Caesar's representative, and what is his response to Jesus? He's amazed. There's something going on here. You see it going on in, 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 uh, in Pilate's head. Now, verse 6. It was the custom at the feast to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in a recent uprising. So the crowd came and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Speaking to, about Jesus, knowing that sarcasm. Knowing, verse 10, that it was out of envy that the chief priests handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. Back up just with me just a little bit. The word Barabbas, the name Barabbas, Bar means son. So it's Bar Abba, son of God. His forename in some of the traditions is Jesus. Jesus is a common name, Joe, Joseph, Joshua, very common name, one of the heroes in the Old Testament. And so his name, Jesus Barabbas, Jesus, son of God. Do you see the irony that Mark is playing with here? What do you want me to do with the king of the Jews? Release to us Barabbas, the son of God. What should I do with the king of the Jews? And they say to him, verse 13, crucify him. Barabbas is the first of many sons of God who will be released by the death of the king of the Jews. I need you to sit with that for a minute. The first of many sons of God, human beings, people, who are released by the death, the substitutionary death of Jesus, the King of the Jews. The call to crucify Jesus is electrifying. And Pilate is pushed back you can see his response. Why? What crime has he committed? Crucifixion is not even for those performing it for the faint of heart. It is a brutal form of execution reserved for the most heinous of crimes, particularly rebellion and revolt against the state. Pilate can hardly believe his ears. Crucify him? What in the world has he done? Don't you people see what's going on here? This is political hardball. You guys really want to play into the hands of these, these, these mealy-mouthed priests of yours? And of course, by that time, the priests had stirred up the crowd enough that they began to call for the release of Barabbas and the crucifixion of Jesus. Pilate gets the response, crowd shouting all the louder, crucify him. So, this is a critical verse, verse 15. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, 
Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Pilate is driven by not wanting to make things worse than they are. He hears this tumult building, crucify him, crucifying, echoing on the walls of the palace. And his response is, whoa, we need to tone this down now. Releases Barabbas, flogs Jesus, and sends him uh, to his death. Flogging um, is part of the preparation for crucifixion. It is to beat the prisoner with a, 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 cord, a series of cords, leather cords, into which have been tied bits of glass and stone, rocks, and, and pieces of metal. Sometimes, under some pretty brutal flogging, skin has been flayed open to the bone as a way of, of diminishing the body's capacity to resist the horrors of what is going to be coming. It's, 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 a, it's a shock and awe on the body because it will resist physically. It will push back against the horror of crucifixion if you don't subdue it enough to the point that it can't push back. Are you with me? I'm trying to, I'm trying to make this at, at least PG-13. I'm thinking you're, you're starting to get where I'm going here. So they released him. So the soldiers to whom Jesus was entrusted, the ones who would carry out the execution, led him away into the palace, the praetorium. And they called together the whole company of soldiers. Between two and six hundred men are referred to by this term. Two hundred to six hundred men gathered together. They put a purple robe on Jesus. They twist together a crown of thorns and set it on him and begin to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they strike him on the head with a staff, with a, a, a reed, a symbol of his authority, and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they pay homage to him. When they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put on his own clothes and led him out to crucify him. I want you to um, imagine the scenes in the last few weeks that we've experienced as one of our soldiers in Afghanistan snapped under the pressure of trying to maintain in a hostile environment, not knowing whether you would be shot as you went out for lunch, not knowing the pressures that these men and women are under in those kinds of hostile environments. Imagine the Roman government, most powerful nation on the earth, the last post any Roman soldier wanted to be assigned was Palestine. It was the Afghanistan of the first century. Because these people were just brutal, bloodthirsty in terms of their political power, but the guerrilla warfare from the children up to the old men, was horrific for any soldier in that environment. So one of the ways that they maintained was when they had the opportunity, maintained some level of balance when they were out professionally on duty so that they didn't snap at the slightest provocation and cause a riot that would have, have, have created greater and greater levels of chaos. 
But one of the ways they managed that is when they had official permission to abuse one of these Palestinians, one of these Israelis, one of these Jews. They would bring their company around to take advantage of the punching bag that was soon to be crucified. And that's what we're seeing here. It's a pressure relief in a hostile environment in which they get to join in the humiliation. Remember, crucifixion is not just about execution. We spend huge amounts of energy in our, in our culture making execution as humane as possible. In this culture, they spent every effort they could to make it as humiliating as possible. And that's what's going on here. They put his clothes on him. They let him out, having ridiculed him for being the king of the Jews. To be crucified. On their way out, one of the pilgrims... Verse 21, a certain man from Cyrene, namely Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country. They forced him to carry the cross. Just to back up here just on this one a little bit. Um, Simon is from what is now modern-day Libya. He is an African. And he is in Jerusalem for, a, for the feast. Remember, three major feasts. And Jews from around the world were supposed to come into Jerusalem for at least one of those feasts throughout the course of the year. And Simon, that wrong place, the wrong time, or maybe right place at the right time, finds himself pressed into the role of a disciple to carry a cross. The Roman soldiers had the capacity to do this. The refusal would result in death, so they press him into forced labor. It is interesting that we know a little bit about this man. His name's Simon. He's from southern Libya, from, from Africa, like I said. But he is also identified as the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, this might not make any sense to us, obviously, but to the Roman church, there would be, oh, that's who it was. Because if you look at Romans 16 you will discover that Rufus is named as one of the people who are part of the church at Rome who can now validate the historicity of this event and his father's part in it. You see what Mark is doing here? He's saying, we're not making this up. Go ask Rufus what his dad told him happened on that day. And Alexander, apparently also known to the church, although he is not mentioned in the, in the 16th chapter of Romans. So that's why that little bit is there. As we come in then to verse 22, they brought Jesus to the place of the skull. They took him out to the garbage dump on a main road. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh. He did not take it, and they crucified him. He's hanging naked on the cross, Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see who would get what. Humiliation piled on suffering. So it was the third hour when they crucified him, 9 o'clock in the morning. Crucifixion um, as a practice, was there's a variety of, of ways in which persons were crucified. Sometimes their arms were tied to the crossbeam and just their feet feet crossed over one another in a single spike 
put through it uh, one of the artifacts that has been recovered from the period has a spike 11 and a half centimeters long pinning uh, 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 crossed ankles to, to a small platform uh, sometimes they would put a nail through the wrist they put it can't put it through the palm because the weight of the body sinking against the pain would pull the nail out so they put it here so that it's caught on this and this is what when it says they crucified him that's what is meant we're, we're knowing that he was nailed but we also know that it was not the nails that held him to the cross oh how he loves us it was only love that held him to the cross written notice of the charge against him read the king of the Jews they put that over his head so that passers-by they crucified people on the main street on a main highway thoroughfare into town so that anybody passing by would see what would happen to people who dared to rebel against almighty Rome the king of the Jews he called himself and as people passed by they crucified him with robbers one on one side and one on the other Remember James and John? When you come into your glory, when you come into your kingdom, we want to sit with you, one on your right hand and one on your left. Mark is using exactly the same language to describe these two robbers who in this moment of Jesus' coming into his kingdom, they sit one on his right and one on his left. How does the kingdom come? How does the kingdom face down imperial Rome? How does the kingdom of Almighty God, capacity to overwhelm the forces of even Rome, how does the kingdom come? It comes in weakness. It comes in suffering. It comes in pain. We'll talk about why in a minute. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, adding to the humiliation, shaking their heads. So, you're going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Come on down then from the cross. Save yourself. Same way the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. This scenario is just the one that just gets my blood to boiling more than anything else here 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 we have this person that we have been following now for three and a half years or so hanging on the cross the high priests have spent their whole time in this past week plotting how do we eliminate him and they feel that they have finally gotten him into a checkmate situation he is hanging on the cross there is now nothing further that he can do their position is now safe and secure their system of religious micromanagement is firmly in their hands and you can see them all in their long run by the way remember this is Passover this is one of the most sacred days in all Jewish history. And what are they doing? They are standing at the foot of a cross, arms crossed, congratulating one another on the brilliance with which they had eliminated the threat to their power. Let him come down. Can you just feel the smugness 
the self-congratulation? And then it says, those who crucified with Him also heaped insults on Him. The point here is very simply, Jesus was completely alone. Not one person to speak for Him. At the sixth hour, twelve noon, the brightest part of the day, darkness came over the whole land for three hours until three o'clock in the afternoon. Isn't it interesting that the twelfth hour, the noon hour, was the day of the the hour of the sacrifice of the Lamb for the sins of the nation? And at that noon hour, as the sacrifice of a lamb was taking place only a couple of miles away, this sacrifice was moving towards completion. Darkness on the face of the earth. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabatani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a quote from Psalm 22. Jesus had internalized the Psalms. He had internalized the prophets. He had chunks, huge chunks, probably the bulk of the Old Testament, completely memorized as a young man. Have you ever found yourself in a place where you have no energy even to pray your own prayer? And what erupted from him was a prayer that had been written not for him, but that he made his own by David centuries before. That memorized prayer with its, by the way, if you follow chapter 22 to the end, it ends with triumph. It ends with restoration. It ends with hope. That's what he's also got in mind. But now we're at the beginning and now it's about forsakenness. How does the kingdom come? How? Do we overcome the chaos in which we find ourselves? Some of those standing near heard this. They said, listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine, vinegar, put it on a stick, offered it to Jesus. Leave him alone. See if Elijah comes to take him down. Just these little teasing attempts to prolong his life just a little longer, to play the game just a little longer, to pull one more leg off the spider, just a little more, one more wing off the butterfly. You get the feel of what's going on here? That's part of the system. And then finally in verse 37, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. And just that one sentence... Mark underlines how clearly Jesus was in charge of his own death. You will remember later on in another version, the centurion is surprised that he's dead already. Crucifixion could last days. It was a slow process of suffocation. As the condemned, feeling the weight crushing down on his lungs would push up on his pinned legs until the pain become too great for that and then let his body slump again until he couldn't breathe anymore and then push up. And that could go on for days. That's why when they 
when they finally wanted to end the execution, they would break the legs of the prisoners so that they would just suffocate in a moment. Jesus did not wait for somebody to sentence him to death. He chose the exact hour of his death as the ending of the evening sacrifice. And notice what happens. Verse 38. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This curtain is what separated in that place, the holy place, where the people could gather from the holiest of holies where only the high priest could go once a year. Please remember, the high priests have been plotting and strategizing and micromanaging to maintain their position. And what from the cross has Jesus done? He has torn the veil, torn that curtain, torn that protection of their system in two, not from the bottom to the top by human agency, but from the top to the bottom by supernatural intervention. The way to the holy place is now available for entry because of this moment. Their self-congratulatory system has fallen apart right around their ears. In 40 years, even the temple itself will be gone. And the cross will have become a sign, a symbol of victory through suffering. When the centurion, verse 39, Roman witness to the execution, the centurion, the man in charge, saw in front of Jesus, heard His cry and saw, listen to this, saw how He died. He's not talking about the method by which He died. He's talking about the poise, the posture, the dignity with which Jesus leaned into and embraced death and absorbed it into Himself. Said, this man was the Son of God. Now, some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph, Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him, cared for his needs. Many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem were also there. Please notice, the women did not run from the cross. There's no mention in Mark's Gospel of any of the male disciples. But the women didn't run. That will become incredibly important for Mark as this story goes on in, in history. Part of the reason Mark tells us this is for what comes in verse 42. I'm going to move through this quickly because he's setting us up then for next Sunday morning. It was preparation day. That is the day before Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead, summoning the centurion. He asked him if Jesus had already died, but when he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. Joseph brought some linen cloth took down the body and quickly wrapped it in the linen and placed it in the tomb cut out of the rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb and Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. 
Mark is setting up a defense against the idea that the women went to the wrong tomb, which was one of the early rumors that obviated the resurrection. And part of what he's doing is just softening the ground for the argument of next week that the women seeing Joseph wrap the body in linen but not with the proper spices necessary for its embalming given the hurriedness with which it had to take place determined that as soon as they had the option they were going to go on the day after the, after the Sabbath on Sunday morning when they could travel again they were going to go to that tomb and they were going to do for this broken body of a Messiah Savior that they had followed what family ought to do. Um, we've come to the end of the 15th chapter and I want to back up just a little bit with the question that I've asked. In a few moments we're going to go uh, and we're going to do uh, the communion today uh, a little differently than we have before. Um, usually the elements are available for you throughout the course of the service and we invite you just to go as you wish and will. Uh, this morning we're going to just um, take some time as our response uh, and enter into his brokenness and enter into his being poured out. The reason I, I want to do that, the reason we've thought to do that this morning is that the answer to the question, how does the kingdom of God come, is answered in the elements that we will partake of this morning. It does not come by being stronger than any other kingdom, although it is. It does not come fighting fire with fire. It does not come fighting force with force. God could do that, but He did not do that. He did that by going, the kingdom comes as Jesus is obedient to death. Remember way back in Genesis chapter 3, the temptation was with one limitation. You can be fully who you are as the image of God. Just don't eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we, in Adam and Eve, chose to be what we were without limitation, only to discover we had no capacity for the knowledge of good and evil. How do you put Pandora's stuff back in the box? You don't. You've got to go down the wormhole of disobedience with radical, life-ending obedience to redeem and restore what was lost in the garden. So the kingdom comes in weakness. The kingdom comes in shame. The kingdom comes in humiliation. The kingdom comes in the laying aside of power. The kingdom comes in the pouring out of blood. The kingdom comes in a body that is marred beyond, Isaiah tells us, recognition. So brutalized by the flogging and the crown and the brutality, he was not even recognizable as a human being. That's how this kingdom comes. That's the glory of God revealed. Not in strength, might, majesty, and wonder. He can control the heavens. They are the works of His fingers. He lays aside 
His strength and embraces us in our weakness and then invites us to the same journey to take up our cross and to follow Him. It's the only way we're going to win, friends. It's the only way the kingdom is going to finally and ultimately come. When I pray, as I do almost every day, your kingdom come, I know that this is the strategy of the king whose kingdom is coming. So I'm going to invite you in a moment to this table. Pete and the rest of the team are going to come back and they'll uh, um, cover that for us. What I'd like you to do, um, we'll have words of institution here in just a moment. And then we're going to just sit for a moment. And then as you feel comfortable and ready, I'm going to ask you to come in, 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 in with family, with, with, with people around you. Uh, get somebody and, and partake together of this body broken, of this blood shed. Just take the, 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 the cracker, the bread that is there, and dip it into the, into the juice and then move off to the sides and... Go back to your seat and however you want to do it. There's places all over here that we'd just like you to gather. And let's just take a minute and be together in the brokenness that we partake of today. Enter into that as He has entered into it for you. Paul tells us that in the same night in which Jesus was betrayed, He took bread, a common, ordinary, everyday element on every table at every meal and he broke it it said in the breaking of it this bread is my body that is broken for you every time you eat bread torn off a loaf every time you eat bread broken do it in remembrance of me. Do it bringing me back to the table with you. Later on in that meal, he took the cup, that third cup of the Passover meal, the cup of new covenant, and said, this is a cup of new covenant indeed. My blood poured out for you. And as we partake of these common elements, I'm going to ask you to do it again in remembrance, in reenactment, in re-entry into the moment of brokenness and being poured out. We want to stay at the foot of the cross with the women for a little while today. Lord Jesus, we consecrate these elements and ourselves to this purpose that as we sit and contemplate the sacrifice of your life, the price of your love for us, that as we finally are able and are released to get up and find our way to the table, that you, O oh Lord, would meet us here. That as we partake of your broken body, as we partake of your poured out blood, we will enter in to brokenness that is redeeming us. Blood poured out to establish a new covenant between us and God.
we consecrate these things now to that purpose in jesus name